It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 127. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. How's the weather in Denver? Cold. Like, Is it? really, really. Well, it's actually, we just, in the last few hours, came out of it. But we had about three days of almost completely below zero temperatures, even during the daytime. Wow, that is cold. Yeah. I don't think, I think the record low temperature for Seattle is like one. So it's never been yeah. below zero here. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting. The weather's been crazy all over the place. We ended up with a foot of snow last over the weekend. Yeah, no, I, that's that's national news. Yep. yep. Well, yeah. actually, it's funny. when When you look at the national news, our foot of snow, which normally would be exceptional, I mean, it mm. certainly shut us down. Um, is like a footnote to some of the weather that's happening elsewhere in the country. Uh, you know, Texas is getting it really, really hard. People in Austin are having a really hard time, which is just, you don't think of Texas and snow in the same sentence. Yeah, no, I have a friend down there. So I've been seeing reports from there as well. It, it's, I mean, it's really something. And even in, in Colorado, you know, we usually have this thing where, you know, to the east of me in Denver, we've got the plains. In the west, we've got the mountains. Right. And the temperatures are appropriate for each one, but not this week. <laughs> yeah, This right. week, it's been zero in Denver, negative 30 to the east in the plains, and plus 30 in the mountains. Really? That's yeah. bizarre. I that know. is very bizarre. It's, it's a weird thing. And, so, and for our international listeners, we're talking Fahrenheit, of course. Yes. Right? So it yes. would be I'm amazing sorry. if it was minus 30 to plus 30 Celsius. Yes. That would be like, whoa. That would be incredible. <laughs> um, so uh, last episode... Mm -hmm. I talked all about me, my origin story is the way we put it. Yep. And this week, it's your turn, Gary. Let's find out what brought you to sitting in front of the microphone today. (laughs) How did it all get started? Well, I was born, and no, I won't go back that far, but I will um, say that when I was a kid, I mean, like, you know, single digits, all I wanted was a computer. I, I wanted a computer really bad. I, you know, this is in the seventies. I wanted one. I wanted to learn how to program one. I knew that I would make my career programming one. And I'd never actually been in the same room with the computer at that point. I, I just knew. How? And, how did you know about them? What did you work? Like, yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about that in preparation for this. I don't know. I guess I saw on TV, maybe some magazines, I, just some, I don't know. Cause I never really, I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm sure I could pick out an Apple II at that point, you know, by like 1980, if I had one in front of me, but I, I was not in the same room as one. I just knew, I just knew that's what I wanted. And eventually that wore down my family. And for, uh, when I turned 13, I got my first computer finally. Uh, and I, by then I had, you know, we, had a couple of times when I maybe touched one in school, (laughs) you know, it spent 15 minutes, you know, my allotted time sitting at one and stuff, but not really much use uh, up to that point. And um, did a lot of research on the best possible computer for a 13 year old in 1983 to get as their first computer and came up with the completely wrong answer that that was a TRS-80 model (laughs) three. Couldn't matter of fact, that's like, the the best wrong answer. It's like that is the worst computer to get at that point for that use. Uh, but somehow everything added up to that. And that's what I got for my first computer. And it was a you know it was decent and it came with a book. 
that taught you how to program in basic. Mm -hmm. And I devoured that book like instantly, like within days and started programming, you know, my own stuff right after that. I mean, I really took to it just like I knew I would. Right. And, and from that point on, a huge hobby of mine was just programming. I mean, I would, I would rush to get home from school, do my homework. So then I could spend the rest of the evening programming, wow. making stuff up on the computer. I just loved it. Um, eventually I did, we did correct the purchasing mistake and I got an Apple II. <laughs> uh, well, you know, and, and part of it was because, I mean, I worked, uh, I was on the computer all the time. It was obvious I was doing really good at it. Right. I actually had submitted programs to, um, you know, TRS-80 magazines <laughs> for publication. It's sure. Never got sure. one published, but, A bummer. Um, but yeah, I did. And I guess that was enough to convince uh, my family that so, uh, indeed it was worthwhile spending the extra money to get an Apple too. So what was it about the TRS-80 uh, the those, those of us at the, of the time lovingly referred to as the Trash-80? Yeah. Trash-80. Um, and it wasn't even the good Trash-80. Like the good Trash-80 would have either been the Model 1 just before that or the color computer just after that. Yeah. So what, what, what was it Model that made 3. it the worst computer, the worst choice for you? I mean, it was just a monochrome business machine. Um, it was just, there was nothing. There was probably the least amount of games, least amount of software, all that. It was relatively cheap, you know, with an all-in-one. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember how much it cost, but it was definitely considerably cheaper than an Apple II. Because mm -hmm. I think an Apple II would have been the answer, except for it was expensive. Right. So, you know, eventually I got an Apple II. I also eventually started using computers all the time at school because the schools got Apple IIs. And I was, you know, programming in basic, doing all sorts of things. Um and, and really doing good at it. And, and at that point, you know, I was convinced before my first computer that that's what I was going to do for a career and that I was going to be really good at it. But by the time I was like midway through high school, everybody around me also was like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. you are you are really good at it. You can do all this stuff on the computer and all. <laughs> so when I went to college, when it was time for that, I uh, went into the, the very brand new computer science field. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was very brand new. As a matter of fact, I think there was only a handful of schools that had gone to the accredited computer science curriculum. Mm -hmm. And I went to one of those, which was uh, Drexel University in Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia, and so this was an easy school for me to go to. And Drexel had a couple of interesting things going for it. I, I started there in 87. One of the things that was interesting was that every student got a Mac. And, you know, they had a lot of attention for that at the time. You actually, you know, when you signed up for your housing and your meal plan and all that stuff, you also signed up for getting your computer. And you had to go and stand in line at the, the day they distributed them. And you got a uh, Mac SE, two floppy drives, no hard drive, uh, monochrome, tiny little screen, all in one thing. And that was kind of neat. So that was my introduction of Macs. My first impression was I hated Macs. I really hated them. The reason was because with the Apple II and other computers I had used, you turn them on and you could start programming them right away. You know, with basic, you just start typing the code and everything. Right. But with a Mac, you know, you didn't have that anymore. You know, I, they gave us Pascal because that was what we were going to learn in the computer science program is the beginner language. And you had to like load up a whole system to just get in and then set up all these files and different things just to get Hello World on the screen, you know? And I didn't like that. I was like, I could do that in basic in one line, like in three seconds of booting the machine up, 
I could actually have that going. And here you have to do all this prep work. So I didn't really like the Mac at first. I saw it like as this application running machine rather than a programmable computer every real um, computer yes yeah <laughs> actually and at the time the one thing that you know i discovered that you really could program right out the bat was uh at, the, at that time mac started coming with hypercard oh yeah and, I remember that. and i started using that and that was like well, hey that's a lot closer right you could you could get a hypercard stack going in you know 15 seconds and you start having things on the screen and so i actually became really good at using hypercard and i would create all sorts of little projects my my hobby of programming in basic in high school kind of translated to my hobby of using hypercard in college so my coursework was things like pascal c uh lisp <laughs> sql you know all this stuff mm -hmm. and but then when i wanted to actually get something done i would just make you know hypercard stack and right. program that um but, you know, it was good that, uh, you know, it was in a real computer science curriculum. Today, it's taken for granted. There's, I don't know, it's got to be hundreds, thousands of schools right. that follow the, the uh, you know, the current computer science curriculum. But back then, it was very new. Um, and a lot of the biggest names in computers now all went through this computer science curriculum at the time, um, including like the Google guys and the Facebook guys and all that. Mm -hmm. The other thing about Drexel at the time, and I think still now, is they, they were a co-op school. What that meant was you went for five years instead of four. And then your three middle years, half of the time you worked for a company. Oh. So you got this work experience. Mm -hmm. And they weren't internships, really, because number one, you got paid for, you know, for them. They were never free. And number two, you had to be actually working in the field. If a company wanted to participate in the co-op program and get one of these Drexel students to work for them, they had to go and say, yes, they, you know, oh, computer scientist. Yep. We're going to have them sitting at a computer programming. So my three co-ops, I was programming. That's awesome. Um, my first job would have been in 88. Uh, I started working for a company and I was thrown right into programming Fortran, which you Yay. mentioned in the last episode. <laughs> yeah. I believe when I first got there, like in those six months, we moved from Fortran four to Fortran 77. Um, and and I didn't I didn't necessarily like Fortran very much at the beginning because mm -hmm. if I remember correctly it was all subroutines it was like here's like five pieces of syntax and then everything else you call a subroutine <laughs> to to do um, but you know I I discovered that I could really quickly pick up computer languages I had a few of them but they were always in a formal education environment but Fortran was like here's a bunch of our code can you add something to this mm -hmm. and I was able to get around and figure out Fortran and. And I was like, yeah, I could, I think at this point I could learn any computer language pretty quickly. Right. And that's been true ever since. Yep. Um, so I worked my three co-op jobs there. I had lots of work experience, um, but I also did something a little different uh, in school. I, you know, liked socializing. I liked doing stuff outside of just my class classroom stuff, but I wasn't the type to join a fraternity or anything like that. So I joined the student newspaper. And I didn't just come, you show up once a week and turn in an article or something. Mm -hmm. I really, I just started hanging out there all the time with the group of people that always hung out there. That became kind of my fraternity. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there for a while and basically rose through the ranks and a lot of fun stuff happened. All my, all my fun stuff and drama and all that happened there at the student newspaper. That's where I really uh, spent more time than probably in my curriculum. I did great in the computer science curriculum. I, you know, had a pretty high GPA and I loved it. And I, you know, still loved computers as much as I did, even when I was a little kid, but I love journalism too. 
in my senior year, I actually became editor in chief of the the newspaper. Oh, cool! I didn't know uh, that. Which, which would be unusual if Drexel had a journalism program. Because if Drexel had a journalism program, then you know the student newspaper would be typically dominated by the sure. journalism students. Sure. But Drexel didn't, so it was an opportunity for you know scientists, engineers, business majors, you know, to have like this other thing that they were doing. And not have these pesky journalism majors around to get in the way. Um, <laughs> I really loved it. And by the time I was close enough to graduate where I wasn't going to change my major, I, you know, I still wanted to get my computer science degree. I, I wanted to explore journalism. So I applied for, was accepted to a master's program at the University of North Carolina for journalism. So I finished my computer science degree. Spent my senior year as a editor of the student newspaper and, and loved that. And then went to North Carolina for two more years of school um, to be, uh, you know, get a master's degree in journalism. So yeah, I really liked school. I went for seven years to college and uh, yeah, uh, some great years. The, at UNC, I found out like things were flipped in at Drexel. I was a computer scientist who could write. Like Mm -hmm. I knew how to write, you Mm -hmm. know, that's why I was into journalism. I knew how to put words together and communicate ideas to people. And that was unusual. The opposite happened when I went to North Carolina. I was suddenly in the journalism program, and I was the guy that knew computers. Right, right. So, yeah, that really became, you know, we had computers there for desktop publishing, which right. I loved. I did a lot of desktop publishing work. Like, uh, part, I had a lot of part-time jobs that were desktop publishing using Quark Express um, <laughs> and other things like it. Um, but, you know, I knew how to work those computers, get them to do things that the teachers and the other students didn't. Um, there were networks were starting at the time. The internet was not quite public yet, but it mm-hmm. was, if you, if you were at a university, it kind of was. <laughs> and uh, so I could get around in that uh, for research and all this stuff. Matter of fact, uh, I remember, uh, and I bought a, uh, one of those early power books, Mac power books, the power book 160, right. just bringing that to the library and putting it on a desk t- to use at the library was a whole new thing back then. People would, you know, their heads would turn. <laughs> There's a guy sitting in the library with a computer he brought with him, you know, because that was unusual at the time. Five right. years later, it wouldn't be unusual, but for the time being, it was. Um, so I started to get into the idea that the future of newspapers was on computers, right? That people would be reading. Uh, news on computers in the future. And got to remember this is just before the internet. Right. So most people didn't know what the internet was. Uh, so all these other journalists and professors around me and stuff, I was saying in the future, not too far from now, you'll, instead of getting paper newspapers, we're going to get our news on our computer screens. And they were like, what? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> but they liked it. And they said, that does sound like something that may actually happen. I don't know, maybe. So I was like, you know, I did my master's thesis on that. I did, uh, uh, they uh, published a lot of stuff about their grad student that was doing research on the future of interactive newspapers and stuff. I actually worked at the Baltimore Sun, just, you know, up the road from North Carolina there right. uh, on some interactive newspaper projects. They hired me as a journalist for for summer internships right. and I actually wrote articles. But while I was there, the uh, they saw you know what I could do in the computer and they were like, ooh maybe we should get out in front of this, and so I actually produced what might have been one of the first interactive newspapers. We distributed it on a floppy disk. <laughs> uh, so there was an edition in the summer of, of 1993 that was um, 
on a floppy disk. So you get it if you're a Mac user. I think we sold 40 of them. <laughs> <laughs> so what makes an interactive newspaper interactive in those days? Well, the fact that you, you know, you would choose what article to see, you know, it wasn't a PDF. It was uh, something I created in HyperCard, actually. Of course. <laughs> um, that the, you know, you would come up with, here's the headlines, like here's the front page, and you would click on what you wanted to see. It would go to that article and, you know, you could kind of go through it. And I think I had a couple little bits in there, like little charts and, and graphics and stuff that would react to like, you could change things. Um, the all-star game was in, um, uh, the baseball all-star game was in Baltimore that year. And you could go, and there was a, a set of playing cards and you could flip through the playing cards of all the all-stars. Um, so stuff like that. Um, so after, after that, I traveled around a bit, but I also kept my eye out for, you know, a job mm -hmm. <laughs> and a company in Denver turns out was hiring they were doing what looked like to me to be an interactive newspaper but for kids it was like an educational tool okay so the kids would get this this newspaper on computers this was before the internet so they had right. a different delivery mechanism and um that sounded really interesting and being into journalism i applied to be a journalist working for this interactive newspaper mm -hmm. uh so I sent in my resume and in one of those, uh, things, you know, fateful moments that you're not even around for, uh, right. the head of the, the journalism side of things was had uh, the resume on her desk. The head of the software side of things happened to notice it on her desk and look at it. And he said, I'm taking this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a call and an interview and they hired me and moved me out to Denver where I've lived ever since. Um, and it was great. It was uh, basically, you know, this online newspaper, just like I had envisioned it during college, mm -hmm. uh, the only weird thing being for kids, but it needed to be delivered to an audience and people at home didn't have a way, you right. know, you couldn't really distribute an online newspaper then just before the internet came out. But the, the schools actually had systems where you could deliver over cable modems, these early cable modems, you can deliver right. this content. So there was a way to actually deliver to this audience. And there was educational activities and games and things in this newspaper product. And it was a daily. So there was like a daily newspaper production. And I did a lot of the work on the software there. Um, so that was, that was fun. It moved me out here and it got me working for actually Reuters was one of the owners of this startup. So. Did the start, saw, do you, what was the name of the startup? What was it? It was called Ingenious. Okay. So, and it was very much like an internet startup uh, that, you know, the ones that would be around a decade later, it flamed sure. out really fast. <laughs> I was actually only there for 18 months. And wow. when I left after 18 months, it was like, this place is crashing and burning fast. Uh, and it lasted for like another year before it did completely close. I was going to say, so did you, did you exit or did the company close I exited, around you? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I exited. So, uh, you know, while, so while I was there, I, you know, I always wanted to have my own company. I was always interested in being an entrepreneur. I mentioned that I sent in software to those uh, magazines, even when I was, you know, a kid. Um, I even, uh, I, I developed uh, all, all sorts of just little projects. And sometimes it was desktop publishing. Sometimes it was little software ideas I had. And I really wanted to have my own company. I was like, very, I was not looking to climb any kind of corporate ladder. I was looking to make enough money to pay off student loans and stuff like that and get out on my own. The uh, thing was that right at that time, something interesting happened. I was using software at that company called Macromedia Director. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which was kind of like HyperCard, <laughs> a much more advanced version of HyperCard that was cross-platform, Macs and PCs, and allowed you to create multimedia content. People used it to create the CD-ROMs at the time, which were a big pre-internet thing. You get a CD-ROM and it would have like, you know, all this stuff. You could kind of browse around and all the content on CD-ROM. And I was, we were using that to create our interactive newspaper for kids. And uh, Macromedia did something interesting at the time. They uh, saw that the internet had just started. I mean, literally, it's like 1994. Uh, and like around 19, 1985, the internet was public, but nobody still knew what it was. You know, no, people weren't using it. It was something I think you could just barely get onto it through AOL if you wanted to, like in a little window. And the AOL browser and stuff. Um, well, Macromedia took their software and said, well, in addition to creating executables, we're going to create a plugin for the Netscape browser that will allow you to run the little things you create in Macromedia Director, but on a web page. So at that point, those of us had been using the internet for a year or two, um, web pages were static. They were right. text and pictures, and that was it. Every once in a while, there'd be a sound file. You could play it. You know, a video file, if you had enough bandwidth, you could, but it was not an interactive part of the web page. Putting Macromedia Director as a plugin into Netscape, and they called it Shockwave at the time, um, allowed you to actually have this little rectangle in the middle of a web page that had interactive content. And I immediately thought, oh, I can make games. Right. I always wanted to make games, but you really couldn't make games on your own. It wasn't a solo entrepreneur kind of thing. It was like you worked for a game development company. They got a distribution deal through a publisher, yet there was shelf space to deal with inside of software stores. It was a whole thing. But if you could make a game and put it on a web page, anybody could play it. I didn't have to ask anybody's permission or have a publisher or anything. So I started creating using the skills I knew for using Macromedia Director these little games and i stuck them on my website which didn't even have a domain name at the time it was like you know those early domain names that had you know it was the name of the company slash and then like a tilde Building, and then yep. your name yep you know so i put these things on a on a web page and i was really early in doing this a lot of what macromedia pushed at the beginning was like you can have interactive buttons like a button that's a globe that spins around or you could you know, have a little menu and all. And I was like, oh, here's here's a crossword puzzle. Here's Minesweeper. Here's mm-hmm. Solitaire. Mm-hmm. And here's like a game I made up that's like spaceships and words and stuff, you know. And then I put that out there and I started to get a lot of attention for it. So I thought, this is my company. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to create web-based games. And actually, I went to some conferences like the Game Developers Conference and talked about web-based games and the future of web-based games. Um, so I left the startup I was at and started doing this full time. And that was like the beginning of my company. Within a year, I had hired uh, one of the artists that I knew from the previous company away. And the two of us were, uh, I was doing the programming, he was doing the art, and we were creating web-based games. Um, The way we made money at the beginning was companies would license it from us. So like one of my earliest games was a little 2D golf game. And my first client was Budweiser of Japan. (laughs) <laughs> who licensed it gave me gra- I cha- had to change the graphics and make it all Japanese right. and then they ran a like a, a Budweiser promotion in Japan where you could play nine holes of golf on your computer on a web page um, and that was you know <laughs> cool and fun and it was cool to get paid for that uh, a, a very big company with offices all over the United States and world that has a mouse as a mascot hired me to make a bunch of games for them 
um, a big other big, uh, you know, companies, movie companies, TV production companies, they all were creating their websites looking for content to go on them. So they would either hire me to create games or they would see a game I had and they would license it and I would change some things to brand it for them. So there weren't even any ads on web pages then. I wasn't even doing that. It was a purely like my my you go to my site, play all the games for free, no strings attached, and then companies would come along and say, Oh, we like this stuff. You know, here's this you know, we want to take one of your games and put it on our site. <clears throat> so um, that was really cool. And I, I soon grew the company to a third employee and then hired a bunch and got an office. And we were trying to do, you know, build as many games for ourselves as we could, trying to get clients, uh, more clients to, uh, you know, license our games and things like that. <clears throat> and that was really good. That was, we're around 2000 now. Um, and, that would have been great, except, you know, in 2001, kind of the, there was that internet bubble burst thing. And that was basically my client list. <laughs> all those internet companies that went down, it was all those, you know, early companies that got all this funding and they would build these websites or these regular companies that would say, oh, we're going to spend a ton of money on our website. And they would pay me. And then after the internet bubble burst in 2001, um, <clears throat> suddenly all that went away. So uh, that was unfortunate, but it was fun while it lasted. Um, at the time, I also had a, a side thing going on that was uh, computer book writing. So this started out as just a way to establish myself uh, in, the, in the industry, maybe get more clients, but it turned into a lot more. Actually, that original job I had in Denver, that was, as I said, using Macromedia Director. The programming language in Director was a programming language called Lingo. And I didn't know Lingo when I went for the job interview. <laughs> right. So I went to the bookstore to get a book on Lingo. Couldn't find one because there wasn't one. So I went uh, to the interview and they said, ah, nobody knows Lingo. You have a computer science degree. You'll figure it out. And they were right. 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 But three months later, I had been using Lingo so much that I declared myself a world authority on it <laughs> and said, I'm going to write a book on Lingo. And um, I didn't understand the publishing, the book publishing industry at all. Right. So I wrote the book, which isn't how you do it. You're supposed to go and send proposals to publishing companies. And then they're supposed to say, we like your idea, but we want it to be a little different. And you work together with them, develop a table of contents. Then you get to work. I just wrote the book. And then I contacted publishing companies and said, I wrote this book. Would you like to publish it? And that's not how you do it at all. So I did the most ridiculous thing at the time, which was I gave the book away for free. I gave it away on AOL. AOL had a little thing where you could download files and people would upload short stories, graphics, whatever, to these little, you know, download sections. And there was a section on AOL for, uh, you know, Macromedia director people. So I've written this book and I put it as a free download for anybody to get. Before I did that, I asked all my friends, if I should do that. And I asked all my family members if I should do that. And every single one of them said, no, <laughs> you shouldn't give away stuff like that for free. It's worth something. Right. If you give that away, you're going to regret it. Well, I gave it away. I did establish myself as like an expert in the field. Mm -hmm. um, I found out when I went to conferences, people knew my name. I could get speaking gigs. One day I came home and there was a message from an engineering firm that was using my free book to try to do some things with Macromedia Director. Noticed that the, in the beginning, it said, I live in Denver, Colorado. And they hired me at an obnoxiously high consulting fee to work for them hourly uh, in the <laughs> evenings and weekends. 
um, to, to do that. And actually, when I left the company that I was working for, one of the things that got me to leave the company was this uh, engineering firm uh, said, we want you to leave your company so you can give us more hours. So cool. we'll guarantee you 10 hours a week for the next year. And I was like, uh, 10 hours a week at this amount is more than I make in my salary job. Awesome. So, so that helped me leave that. And then one day I got a call from a publisher that one I had not contacted saying, we have on our marketing schedule here, we need to have a book on lingo. Um, we asked some people and they said, you're the guy that should be writing that because <laughs> of your free book that you put out last year. So now we're going to pay you a big advance and a really good royalty amount to write your next book on lingo. So that was my first computer book that wow. I got paid for. Yeah. And that led to a second computer book and a third computer book. And, you know, every time the software is updated, update this and, and uh, other ideas for computer books. And when I eventually I left uh, director shockwave stuff to go to flash because flash came around flash was action script different programming language different environment but used for web-based games and i did some of the earliest web-based flash games uh and then when you know the opportunity came to write more books i was like i should do it on flash and so okay so i started writing books on flash and I actually started making some really good money at it like way beyond the royal the advance you get on royalties because generally mm -hmm. you know when a computer book company would give you say a ten thousand dollar advance on a book they did their math and they said he's probably going to make ten thousand dollars on this so we'll give him that advance now mm -hmm. get him to write the book and he'll never see another penny <laughs> right you know that's the, the math they're trying to do well i started when with these flash books i actually would break past that and start making pretty good money on the uh royalties after that so that was a uh, pretty good um for a while, uh, I had to keep my company small because, you know, the internet kind of went through this period where it wasn't doing very well, <laughs> right. uh, which allowed companies like Facebook and Google and stuff to really get started mm -hmm. um, because the, the first round of companies like Yahoo and all had kind of burned out. Uh, but eventually things started turning around in the mid 2000s and I started staffing up again, going back to that old model of let's do uh, web-based games, much more advanced web-based games now for companies. Um, at the time, podcasting was new, particularly video podcasting. Mm -hmm. So we uh, started doing video podcasts. I, um, I remember just, podcast salad. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so one, yeah, we, we had all these different ideas. And I basically wanted to create a TV network. At, at the time, the, the game business was going really good. So I had extra money to spend on like new business development kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was like, let's create a TV network. I called it, my, my company was and still is called Clever Media. So I said, that's a perfect name for a TV network anyway. So Clever Media TV, uh, that's what we'll call it. And we'll start developing all these programs, like a whole list of programs. Some of them will even make 22 minutes long because a cable company may want to pick them up. Um, so we started doing these programs and they were all sorts of things. Like one was on books. You know, just like what new books were coming out, interviews with authors, that kind of thing. Uh, we had comedy shows. Uh, we had improv. Uh, we had an improv comedy show where we just did these crazy things and then filmed a lot of it and then cut it down. We had scripted comedy shows. Um, we, uh, you know, did the show called Podcast Salad, as you remember, that was basically a video podcast about video podcasting. Yep. So it was like entertainment tonight, but for video podcasts, you know, what was new, what were the, the, the current popular shows doing that was different. We'd have interviews with podcasters, uh, that kind of thing. 
It also gave us an excuse to go to the, some of the new conferences that were on all of this video stuff. And everybody knew who we were because it's like they wanted to be on Podcast Salad because that got them promotion and stuff. Um, that was really interesting. And then at one time, as we're thinking about new shows, uh, we, as normal, got like, you know, a divergent conversation about what was new in the Apple and Mac world. And we realized that not only do we all use Macs, but we all talked about Apple stuff and what Apple was doing and what Apple was up to and things like this. And wow, it would be easy to do a show on Apple because mm-hmm. we already pay attention to this. Right. So we started Mac Most. Um, which originally was kind of like Podcast Salad, but it was for Max. We had a, a host that came on and introduced segments. And the segments, sometimes it was me, sometimes it was other people giving you tutorials, news, rumors, all sorts of things, you know, in a, like a weekly 22-minute show. And that actually started to pick up and get more traction than all the rest. So I started to think that instead of having all TV network on all these different things, why, do, why doesn't Mac Most become that? And we have Mac Most that has a bunch of different shows. Mm-hmm. And one of the shows will be, oh, I'll do a tutorial thing. I'll, I'll do like three times a week, I'll do a tutorial. So I started doing uh, the show, which was just me just re- screen recording with the camera on me at the same time. Here's how to do this on a Mac. Um, that show became like the most popular one, but also the easiest one to make. Mm-hmm. And it didn't involve anybody else but me. Right. right. So at the time, uh, I was, you know, uh, things, the internet was also in 2008, there was another recession, mm-hmm. another kind of ec- economic collapse uh, that had made me think maybe I should downsize. And I thought, well, what do I do with all this stuff I'm doing? Um, well, this one Mac most show, I can keep doing that. So I did. I got rid of everything else, and I just started doing MacMost tutorials five days a week. And mm-hmm. around the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, and that was um, the birth of MacMost. I basically did uh, daily tutorials, and I haven't stopped since <laughs> <It's> 2021. <laughs> um, the The book stuff helped too because at the time, my publisher came to me and said. Uh, hey, we've got, we're doing a new series. It's going to be basically a series that covers everything. Uh, you know, every piece of hardware, every piece of software, you know, uh, kind of like the dummy series, but you know, it's just going to be, we'll call it something else. It's called the my series, you know, like mm-hmm. my MacBook or my iPhone and, uh, Apple's coming out with a tablet and I'm like, yeah, I know the rumors, you know, uh, and they're like, yeah, we want you to do the tablet thing. And I was like, okay, I'll do my Apple tablet, whatever it's going to be called. So they came out with the iPad and publisher said, you're on. You remember two years ago, you signed a contract saying you would do a book on my Apple tablet. I was like, yeah, yeah. And I said, here's the thing. I got it. And you no need to do a book. It's so easy to use. You just tap the buttons. Everything's self-explanatory. No book is necessary. So we don't have to do a book. Isn't that good news? And they said, no, we still want a book. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, you got to be kidding. So I started doing a book on like, uh, I guess, advanced stuff that you could do on the iPad. I don't know. I turned in a chapter and they said, no, 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 no. This is way too advanced. Just tell people how to do stuff like get their email. I was like, but you don't need a book to do that. I'm like, all right, I'll prove it to you. And I did a chapter on how to browse the web on the iPad that was so basic that I was sure they would come back to me and they would say, you're right. We don't need a book. And instead, they said, that's great. 
give, do the rest of the chapters. Give us now. more. <laughs> so I said, all right, all right. So I did the rest of the chapters, gave them the first edition of my iPad. It did okay. They said, well, we, uh, iPad 2 came out. We need a, you know, a new version. And I'm like, well, as long as your guys are willing to pay me in advance, I'll do it. And that one did even better. And then a third edition the next year. And that one started doing really good. As a matter of fact, Sam's Club and Costco picked it up and would put massive pallets of this book in the middle of like Costco. <laughs> and people would, would basically buy an iPad and then pick up one of these things. <clears throat> it did so well that in 2013, it was the best-selling computer book in the industry. <laughs> Uh, and it turns out that with a whole long tail of computer books, when you're at the head of the long tail, you actually make really good money. Yeah. <laughs> that computer, I, I kept the last edition I did was 2017, I think, for that book. Um, so it was like something like 12, 13 editions, including one specifically for seniors. I think there was one specifically for kids. I don't remember now. I did so many versions of it. I don't even have all the versions of the, the iPad book. Did really right. well. And that's while I'm doing the MacBook stuff. Right. Uh, meanwhile, I still have the web-based games, but nobody's playing web-based games anymore. So I started translating them to mobile games so you can play them on your iPhone or an iPad. Um, and and that kind of, uh, I guess, brings us to where we are today. I mean, I, I still make games, but they're mostly for mobile. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, all my web-based games are gone as of the beginning of this year because Flash and Shockwave are now dead. Right. Yep. And, and boy, you know, Macromedia was bought by Adobe, of course. And Adobe didn't just stop developing Flash. They went in and turned Flash off. Right. You know, they disabled Flash on everybody's browser, which I've got a little bit of a problem with because I have all these games. But I, I had long, long ago stopped making money off the web-based versions of those games. And it's the mobile versions of some of those games that kind of live on and are the current versions anyway. So I still have that. And, and, you know, a couple of years ago, I developed like five games in one year and really got back into like trying new games and ideas. Um, I'm working on games now, but I'm doing it in Swift, not uh, Adobe stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, MacMost has continued uh, through all those years to do good. Now, at the beginning of MacMost, uh, I was, you know, it was a video podcast. That's what I thought of it as. Mm-hmm. The ma- our main distribution method was podcast. You go, go into iTunes to the podcast section. And that's where you find Mac most, but we had a website too. And, um, also there were other sites out there that did video stuff like Vidler and Vimeo and blip mm-hmm. and all that. And one of those was YouTube. <laughs> so I stuck, I, I basically, you know, the very first episodes of Mac most were on YouTube as well, because it was one of the many places we put our videos. Well, you know, after a while, YouTube started paying people if you did well enough on YouTube. Um, I actually didn't pay much attention to YouTube uh, until I noticed that the the videos on YouTube for MacMost were actually doing pretty well, and some money was trickling in. So around 2019, as late as 2019, I started actually paying attention to YouTube in a serious way, and now I do pretty well there. Like I've built up the audience at YouTube quite a bit. It's kind of weird if you look at MacMost because if you look at the earliest videos, they go back to 2007, I think maybe even 2006. Which so I've been around longer than ninety nine percent of all YouTubers, right? Um, but for the longest time, it was just kind of flat because I, you know, YouTube wasn't my thing. It was like come to macmost.com, get the weekly newsletter, and all that. Mm-hmm. YouTube was just a way to bring people in. It wasn't until twenty nineteen that I was like, oh, I should be getting more subscribers, and I should be putting better thumbnails, and you know, uh, following the trends on YouTube to like how to shoot video and how to you know 
you know, make the video quality good and interesting and keep people's attention and all that. It's funny because I remember those early days of YouTube. I was always complaining that they didn't allow us to upload a high enough resolution mm. for the kind of tutorials that you and I are doing. Yeah, 640 by something, something. If something just wasn't enough, right? No, because you're doing, you know, here's the computer screen. Right. Well, everybody, their computer screens were bigger than 640 by 480. Yep. So you could show a portion of the computer screen, or you could show a blurry version of the computer yep. screen at yep. that resolution. Yep. But eventually, YouTube caught up. Um, sure. As did and, the editing tools that would have been helpful at that yep. time as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, so I haven't written a computer book in several years. I think that's completely dead. I do online courses now that kind of took over. Like I started doing online courses when I stopped writing computer books. Uh, the difference being that I, I own those courses. Like when I was writing books, that was for publishers, you know, mm -hmm. they own the books. I was just the royalty author, you know, that we get money from them based on how well the books did. Uh, but the courses are all mine. So I'm much more in control of my destiny than I've ever been. Um, all that early stuff on licensing games, I stopped that about 2008 and, you know, went to the idea that I, all the games I made, I was going to publish them myself. Sure. You, I've, I put them at a website. I made money through ads because, you know, web advertising picked up. If I put them out as a mobile app, I made money through ads or sales or whatever, but I wasn't going to do client work. So if somebody wanted to hire me to make a mobile game, my answer was no. And since 2008, I haven't worked for any clients unless you include the book publisher that I had been working for all those years and I had a great relationship with. So it didn't really feel the same. It was a very... A good, healthy relationship between author and publisher and the editors I work with. Um, un unlike client work, which is up and down, you can have great clients, right? And you can have horrible ones, right? Um, so, 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 yeah, yeah. So that's where you are today. Yeah. Where are you headed? Where am I headed? Um, I, I definitely have been for the last few years not doing as much game work. I'm still the guy that loves to program, just like I was the kid that loves to program, right? And I have been taking, uh, you know, time to maybe get a little bit back into game work. I've rewritten one of my most popular games as a Swift app, and I'm testing it now. And I hope once I can completely leave kind of the Adobe sphere of influence with that game, that I could focus on that game and maybe keep improving it. Mm -hmm. and really enjoy that. But I was never very focused as a game developer. I, I always had all these games at my site. You know, at one point, 250 different games. Yikes. Were either at my site or somebody else's site. But that's not much focus. One of my earliest games was a game called Space Pirate. And I created that game and uh, really put a lot of effort into it over a few months and tried to focus on it. And then a company came along and bought it from me. They offered me so much money for it that I was able to get put a down payment on my first house and put enough money in the bank to hire my first employee. Right. And ever since then, I've been like, boy, it was nice though for a while. Like I thought that was going to be me. Like I wasn't going to be the guy that made a bunch of games. I was going to be the guy behind this one game, Space Pirate. But company came along and bought it. And I never really returned to focusing on one game like that again. So I hope to do that again. Uh, with Mac Most, I'm growing my audience and i'm really uh happy with the fact that i think i've got a lot of potential i was actually showing uh showing someone the other day uh that if you go to youtube and you search for like mac tutorials mm -hmm. i don't show up in the top 10 
And that makes me really happy. It does? Be- yes, because if I showed up at number one, that would mean that I'm basically at the peak of how I can do on YouTube. Ah. So what I'm doing now, you know, the audience I've got, the money I'm making from YouTube and from Atmos, that would be like, well, I'm at the top of that, uh, which Interesting. would be okay. But the fact that I'm not even the top 10 tells me that I'm several factors, several multiples away from that. Like I could grow my, office, my, my audience several times and my revenue several times from where I am. Well, with that mindset, I should be downright ecstatic. <laughs> well, yeah, I think <laughs> I, I think you, you might be in a similar boat. Uh, I see other you, tech YouTubers that are bigger than mm-hmm. both of us. Right. And, you know, I, I don't see a reason why either one of us couldn't be as big as, as some sure, of them. Sure. Sometimes sometimes there's stuff, you know, people review tech gadgets and stuff like that. And it's like, all right, they're always going to have more videos than the how-to stuff, mm-hmm. you know. But I still think that two, three, four times what I've got now. So I'm just trying to focus. I'm trying to focus on Mac most like I have been anyway for, you know, two decades. Well, not two decades, 13, 14 years. But really focus even more on it. But also uh, take the time to do some coding and maybe maybe this one app that has been doing well for me for years on you know in the app store mm-hmm. really what would happen if i were to come out with monthly updates instead of an update every three years mm-hmm. you know what if i were to ask users what they wanted and look at competing apps and say oh they've got this feature i'm going to add that mm-hmm. you know i i really want to focus on that and continue to to see what can happen. It's, and I, I'll still probably try other games. I, I put out in that year, I think it was 20, 2018, I came out with five games, and most of those were completely new game concepts. Like I cr- invented a game. It's a word game, but with pirates, and you traded between ports. But it's a word game, you know? And I liked doing that. None of those hit, but I, you know, I still enjoyed doing it, and I, I still could see myself creating more games like that in the future that maybe you know might be complete flops because nobody's ever heard of the game and who wants to play of a play game they've never heard of before yeah but unless they've been marketed to i was going to say that same mentality didn't stop uh you know anything everything from angry birds to farmville to uh um what's the current one right now um i don't know there's so many but yeah there's there's yeah but you know marketing budgets help those right that's one of the things, but it doesn't mean that ones don't, uh, you know, appear every once in a while that can succeed despite not having a big marketing budget. Right. So I don't know, but yeah, I, I don't have any big changes planned. I want to keep, I love doing Mac most. I think after 14 years of doing daily videos, I haven't gotten tired of it. I don't think Yay. I'm ever going to get tired of it. Cool. So I think I'm pretty safe at saying that I'm not going to burn out like many YouTubers do because <laughs> right. I've got this history. Um, and I don't think I'll ever get tired of programming and coding and, and creating new things and being entrepreneurial. Yep. yep. So here we go. Quite the story, quite yeah. a, quite a lot in there. I learned a few things about you that I hadn't heard before. It was very cool. Oh, thanks. Great. It's funny. So as we, we transition to, uh, um, our little ain't it cool segment, yeah. um, I ended up changing up one of the things uh, that I had planned for because your story of. Uh, what life was like in the early days of the internet, there was something you didn't mention that I stumbled across earlier this week. If you go to 
gifcities.org or gifcities.org, depending on Gif how cities. you choose to produce that or pronounce that. As a guy um, named Gary, I got to go with GIF. I got to, yep. Um, <laughs> it's actually owned by archive.org. It's a project of theirs. And what they've done is they've collected all of the horrible animated GIFs that were so prevalent on all of the early websites. So if you're looking for, you know, an animated under construction GIF or uh, just about anything that is, um, you know, that brings up really bad memories, including some flashing text, I noticed. Um, mm. That's just a fun site to go to and refresh your memory. It's basically a search engine. You start searching for stuff. And, you know, I, of course, I went there and I searched for Corgi. And, yep, there were some animated GIFs that I actually remember seeing on other people's websites for some time. So. That's a fun one. Giftcities.org. As always, the link will be in the show notes. Cool. Um, I uh, let's see. Oh, I watched a, a, a quick TV series, the Netflix series Russian Doll. Did you see that? I did. Enjoyed it yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think early on when it came out, I may may have glanced at a bad review of it. Oh, uh-huh. and it turned me off, and I have to learn better. Uh, you know, because after giving it a second chance. I did check the reviews and found out it's very highly reviewed. Right. right so right. I don't, you know, I know I was just a random thing. I saw a bad review, That's, uh, but the, I love time loops uh, and somehow in all of the marketing that Netflix did for Russian doll, I either missed, or maybe they didn't push the fact that it was a time loop. Right. right. So the moment somebody mentioned to me, Oh, time loops. Yeah. Like that, this, that, the other thing, Russian doll was like, wait, wait, Russian doll was a time loop show. <laughs> I don't need to know anymore. Like I literally didn't need, I just started watching episode one. And of course it's a really uh, wonderfully done time loop uh, series. So the actress in that Natasha Leone. Yeah. Um, we were watching orange is the new black. Yep. Sure. Yeah. And uh, of which she's was in, or actually I think she was in almost every season, yeah. uh, but she's just a fun actress to watch. So when she came out with this one, uh, it was one of those things where, okay, yeah, we got to. Um, I think I enjoyed the sci-fi e time loopy part of it. Mm. Uh, my wife wasn't quite as thrilled with it, but yeah, it's a good show. Enjoyed enjoyed it quite a bit. Was kind of hoping they would do a season two, um, but then again, the story kind of yeah, I, you know, it shows. Yeah. Internet Movie Database has a little placeholder for season two. Do they? I mean, the pandemic yeah. has thrown a lot of stuff into chaos that way right. shows that would have gone into another season may not now uh, other shows may be given a little more time now we'll go into a so we'll have to see i also did I, i'll add another one uh palm springs the i've not movie seen that one that is uh andy samberg um and it's actually nominated for a bunch of golden globes which surprised me but that's a time loop as well huh uh, and very much a Groundhog Day kind of time loop. It's getting to the point where it's a whole genre now, right. and I'm starting to categorize, like, okay, that's that's a one-day time loop versus a multi-day or multi-year time loop. Mm-hmm. This is a you die and come back time loop versus right. you go to sleep and come back time. I mean, it's like all these different. <laughs> this is a this is a uh, fantasy time loop where there's you know the character is meant to learn something. To end the time loop. And this is a science-based time loop where there's actually a scientific reason behind the time loop. You no, know, there's all sorts of interesting, weird uh, things. But anyway, Palm Springs, uh, uh, a movie time loop. Sounds fascinating. Um, yeah. 
Uh, let's see. So self-promotion, I would like people to have a look at how you recover when good apps go bad. That is an article that I wrote um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's askleo.com slash 129145. What happened is I, I characterize it as taking my own advice because I'm sure you get this too. Mm -hmm. You get people that come to you and they say, you know what, this app changed, that app changed. I hate it. They didn't do it. Why did they do this? They're trying to screw their customers, whatever, right? And I always respond with, well, you know what? If you don't like it, you should probably look for an alternative. Mm. And that's kind of sort of what happened to me uh, with Evernote uh, without all the grumpiness. Uh, it was one of those things where <laughs> Evernote basically did a rewrite about a year ago. And I've, I picked up the latest copy several months ago. And some of the things that I happened to rely on uh, weren't working. And it wasn't looking like they were going to be working for a while. So I ended up um, actually, re-architecting how I use the um, uh, how I use Evernote, and my choice of another tool that uh, is basically my solution to a problem that I had previously been solving with Evernote that turns out to be solved better by this other tool. So, anyway, how you recover when good apps go bad? Cool. I've got a video uh, this past week on user accounts on the Mac. Um, I find this is one of the places where people trip up a lot. Uh, they don't think about user accounts. They have one user account shared between multiple people. Uh, people fight over preferences, bookmarks, email accounts, because you're all logged in you know, to this one user account, uh, or even just letting somebody temporarily use their, oh yeah, you can use my computer, and then things get changed or accidentally deleted or messed up. Um, so yeah, anybody that uses uh, a Mac needs to know that they should have a user account. Their spouse should have a different user account. Other people in their households should have different user accounts and all of that. So I just have the uh, the basics spelled out in a video. Cool. Cool. I should do one like that for Windows because the concept still applies. The big yep. issue with Windows is that um, by and large, the default setup pretty much has everybody being the administrator. So when you've got a guest over, you just don't want to hand them your account because they could then really do damage to your machine. Right. So. And there's there's that on the Mac too. But I mean, the main thing is just having your own documents. Yes. Having your own like, oh, here, you go to the browser. There are my bookmarks. Yep. You know, my homepage is different. You go to the email client. And it's like, oh, there's my email account. Um, all of that, you know, it's technically you could still, you know, go and do stuff without somebody else's account, especially right. if you're admins, right. but it's, it's not an accidental thing. You would have to, you know, log out, log back in, or, you know, do stuff that, you know, uses their password and everything, which you probably right. don't know offhand. Right. Even if you, you know, you do know your spouse's password, you probably don't, you know, it's not as easy to log into. So it's just basic stuff. And I hear from people all the time where the the root of their trouble is they simply haven't divided up their user accounts, even having an Apple ID, which is, you know, iCloud. Mm -hmm. you now, if you have a separate user account, you've got your Apple ID, they've got their Apple ID, and each user account's logged into its own Apple ID, as opposed to if you have one user account, you're always logging out of iCloud to log into the other person's iCloud account, right. which is just not the way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yep. Very cool. Well, I think that pretty much does it. That was fun. I enjoyed yeah. hearing about about your your origin story. Yeah, nice, um, nice uh, two uh, series. We went through all of the different hosts and all well, of our. I've I've put a bug in at least one us. other host's ear to see if he might be interested in I, doing so. I would love to hear from our occasional guest yes, hosts, our periodic um, hosts, and have supporters. them do the same thing. Um, 
And we, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, we probably want to pick a nice topic and do a deep dive on with one of our upcoming episodes. That also was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's it for this one. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh127. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook or touch us on Twitter or <laughs> visit the show notes. Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't used that. Or visit the show notes on the show um, uh, on the uh, our, uh, on the episodes page. Uh, thanks as always for listening, and we will see you again next week. Take care. Bye.